This is Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to the 26th episode of IP Fridays. Today we have a very prominent guest, Jim Baikoff, who is litigating trademarks for the International Olympic Committee as well as FIFA and other popular sports associations. And we will also tell you about a podcasting patent that has been partly revoked And the European Patent Office issued two important decisions of the Enlarged Boards of Appeal regarding the protection of essentially biological processes and products resulting thereof. But before we jump into all this, I want to say that we are very proud to be uh, hosting our own little reception or meetup during the INTA meeting in San Diego for the IP Fridays podcast. So if you want to be on board and meet us personally, you can see everything you need to know in the show notes of this episode or simply go to ipfridays.com slash INTA. And we are also proud to be co-hosting the Meet the Bloggers event during, during the INTA meeting in San Diego. And you can find out more at www.meet-the-bloggers.com meet-the-bloggers.com So first I want to tell you about a podcasting patent that has been partly cancelled. Patent 8,112,504 had been issued to Personal Audio LLC and this patent basically covered podcasting in its broadest claims. And this patent became interesting to the news when the owner of the patent started to sue um, both uh, comedians like Adam Carolla who had their podcasts and also three major television networks. So on October 30th 2013 the Electronic Frontier Foundation with the help of pro bono uh, attorneys filed a petition requesting the inter-parties review of this patent and in particular claims 31 to 35 who were relevant to podcasting. It was actually not so easy to find prior art since the patent dates back to a filing date in 1996. They were able to find a publication by CNN on their website in the year of 1994, which was the CNN Newsroom video magazine. And the USPTO agreed that 
this publication actually made the relevant claims obvious over the prior art. If you want to read the full story, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash podcasting patent, podcasting patent, one word, www.ipfridays.com slash podcasting patent. Ken Suzanne had the chance to interview Jim Baikoff, who is litigating the trademarks for the International Olympic Committee. And here is what he had to say. Thank you, Rolf. Today we are speaking with James Bykoff, a partner in the intellectual property practice of Smith, Gambrell & Russell, LLP. Jim works out of the firm's Washington, D.C. office, and his practice focuses on, focuses on formulating and implementing worldwide trademark and copyright protection and enforcement programs for clients in the consumer and industrial product sectors, as well as nonprofits and service providers such as banks and insurance companies. He also engages in internet and domain name counseling and enforcement actions. Mr. Bykoff has been active for over 30 years, directing worldwide trademark and copyright protection, litigation, and anti-counterfeiting enforcement. More recently, Mr. Bykoff has been active in internet and domain name litigation. His clients have included the International Olympic Committee, Major League Soccer, the Federation Internationale de Football Association, the American Red Cross the National Grange, and TriStar Insurance. Jim also counsels a growing number of wineries and restaurants on trademark and copyright issues. Jim graduated cum laude from the University of Cincinnati in 1962. He received his LLB from Columbia University School of Law in 1965 and obtained an LLM in trade regulation from the New York University School of Law in 1966. Welcome, Jim, to IP Fridays. Thank you, Ken. Glad to be here. Jim, you handle trademark matters for the International Olympic Committee. Can you tell our listeners about the enforcement activities you've handled? Well, since uh, the mid-'80s, I've had a uh, connection with uh, the Olympics and representation. Um, we handle uh, copyright and trademark uh, enforcement matters for both the International Olympic Committee and uh, have handled them also for the uh, United States Olympic Committee. And these actions take uh, place during uh, games, Olympic games that are held in the United States, where we've uh, uh, been in charge of enforcement matters representing both the United States Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, the organizing committees uh, for the Atlanta 1996 Games, the Salt Lake City 2002 Winter Games, um, we also counsel the International Olympic Committee uh, year-round on Internet and domain name and website uh, infringement matters, uh, counseling, uh, registration of domains, uh, etc. And um, we've had a lot of work, especially in Olympic years. We've also been active in helping to pass legislation to give special protection to Olympic marks, such as the Anti-Counterfeiting Act of 1984 and the Anti-Cyber-Squatting Protection Act of 1999. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, are there any special laws or regulations for registering Olympics-related marks? Well, the protection uh, in the United States is twofold. First, we have, um, and most, the most, uh, I think, effective protection is the Olympic and Amateur Sports Act, 
with it, which is a statute that was originally passed in 1950 as the Amateur Sports Act and amended in 1984. Uh, I'm sorry, in 1978, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called now the Olympic and Amateur Sports Act. And that act gives special protection to Olympic marks. It's a statute that can be found under 36 U.S.C. 22506. And it's a rather interesting statute because it says basically that without the consent of the uh, USOC or IOC, any person who uses for the purpose of trade to induce the sale of any goods or services or promote any theatrical exhibition, athletic performance, or competition um, using either the symbol of the International Olympic Committee, which is the five interlocking rings, or any trademark, trade name, etc., that represents association with or authorization by the IOC or the USOC is subject to a civil suit. Uh, And the the only exception is a grandfather clause, which covers people who used any of those uh, words or symbols prior to 1950, and also people in the Olympic Peninsula area of uh, of Washington State. Those Mm. are the only exceptions. Are you finding a lot of infringing uh, marks coming through on a regular basis? Um, well, I would say that there's always infringements um, around the world, but um, the the Olympic committees, because they are nonprofits and because they want to uh, devote their funds to the uh, games that are being held, and uh, you know, not not divert those into constant legal fees, mm-hmm. they pick and choose where to bring enforcement. And I should say that besides the Amateur Sports Act, uh, Olympic and Amateur Sports Act, they also have trademark registrations in the United States and throughout the world, so that bolsters the protection. So we have had infringements. There have been uh, many, many settlements. Uh, There's been some litigation, uh, especially uh, litigation involving the rings, as well as the uh, the word Olympic and, and various other words that are protected like Olympiad. Hmm. Now, do you believe the system in the United States is working well to protect Olympic-related marks? I do. I think, I think there's strong protection, and that's why uh, many cases are settled uh, by uh, people who either apply for Olympic marks or and get those marks accepted or people who use those marks without knowledge generally will uh, agree to uh, phase them out and uh, adopt other marks because of the strong protection. Mm-hmm. Now, are there any particular victories you've been practicing for many years you can share with our listeners? Well, the Gay Olympics case stands out because that was a, uh, uh, a, a lawsuit against the use of the word Olympics by... Uh, the uh, the gay games, which were then called the Gay Olympics, and that decision really uh, bolstered protection by finding that uh, the the at that time the Amateur Sports Act was uh, an act that was uh, uh, you know legitimate, and that the rights of the uh, of the USOC and IOC in the marks were confirmed as being not simply trademark rights, but rights protected by special statute, which had broad coverage. Mm -hmm. So we think that was a particular victory. Uh, We also had an interesting case later on called the OM Bread decision, which said that even for grandfathered uses, 
those are restricted to the goods or services uh, that were used before the statute took place. So a person who had grandfathered rights could not expand his rights. In that case, it was a bread manufacturer who had rights in selling bread, but then went into some other products that were not bread products, and they were restricted simply to the products that they had uh, produced when they were grandfathered. Interesting. What about other countries, uh, Jim? Do other countries have similar systems such as the United States in terms of registration and enforcement? Well, they do. Um, and I, I can just enumerate these because uh, there's three sets of rights here. One is the uh, national statutes uh, that are, are prevalent in many foreign countries that are similar to the Olympic and Amateur Sports Act and provide strong rights uh, to the International Olympic Committee. The other is the Nairobi Treaty, which is a worldwide treaty that protects the five rings in uh, 67 or so countries. So between these two types of protection, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, many, many countries that have uh, special protection for Olympic marks. And finally, I should say that uh, marks are protected online also uh, in the ICANN world. Uh, there's special protection for the words Olympic and Olympiad in all the new generic top-level domain names and not just in the English language, but in the UN languages plus uh, three others, German, Greek, and Korean. And that protection, uh, as you know, there have been new GTLDs released, and that, that helps to uh, make sure that cyber squatting is cut down on Olympic marks. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, switching gears to counterfeiting, uh, you, you've shut down many counterfeiters over the years. How have the counterfeiters of today uh, how are they different from the counterfeiters of, let's say, five or ten years ago? Well, I think the major difference is the move to the Internet. Um, five or ten years ago, um, we were still dealing with mostly with uh, containers being shipped from the Far East to ports in the United States. Uh, now we see many more shipments that are being made based on Internet orders, um, and sent by post or courier, which are much harder to intercept. That's one of the major changes, the move from uh, physical shipments uh, by boat and airplane to uh, shipments by post and courier, small shipments to directly to consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, the, second, the second thing that's more interesting, I think, is that, uh, as, as you know, in the 70s and 80s, we saw the real beginning of product counterfeiting, although it does go back to the Middle Ages, but uh, we saw the start of, of really enhanced counterfeiting by uh, folks in other countries, and uh, a lot of that was luxury goods like uh, watches and clothing and perfumes. But the, the more recently, we've seen an escalation in dangerous counterfeit products like food and beverages, pharmaceuticals, auto parts, uh, aircraft and defense equipment. So that that's really something that's more dangerous to consumers. Mm -hmm. Are companies today seeing heavy losses as a result of counterfeiting? Is it really still a major problem for, yes. for most companies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a major problem uh, for many for many industries and companies. There are uh, rather serious losses, but it's not just the losses to the companies. It's also the loss of tax revenues to governments, it's the loss of jobs to workers, because 
every time a counterfeit product is purchased, um, there's a, a real product that doesn't get sold. So I mm -hmm. think there's a real hit on industries. And it's not just trademarks, it's also copyrights, the uh, copying of motion pictures before they're released, the copying of records on uh, the sharing platforms, many of which have been stopped, but many more of which are still active, uh, constitute a real heavy loss. Uh, and I can't even quantify it. People have tried to quantify it as being 1% or 2% of world trade, but I think there's, there's really not an exact number because some companies uh, do not uh, want to reveal information about this, and it's still uh, very difficult to quantify. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the Internet for a second. Any issues with respect to unauthorized streaming of content that you can uh, talk about? Uh, yes. Well, this comes up just about every other year when there's an Olympics, and uh, we, we've managed to shut down uh, unauthorized streaming, mainly by cooperation with ISPs. We've uh, been able to, uh, uh, you know, to, to curtail, curtail it very quickly. Uh, I remember during the London Games, there was a site streaming, and we were able, through the cooperation of the ISP, to shut it down within 24 hours. So, uh, in, in these instances, quick action is necessary and cooperation is, is very helpful, and we've been getting it so far. Mm -hmm. Continuing with the Internet, I know you are heavily involved with UDRP work. Uh, can you update our listeners on any important GTLD developments or other matters of interest? Well, what's interesting is that so far uh, with the uh, release of GTLDs, there's been about 500 new GTLDs now. And what we've seen is uh, there's increased cyber squatting and there's the need for trademark owners to consider uh, at least defensive registrations on the second level. Uh, getting a new GTLD is very expensive, uh, but once it's released, then uh, the cyber squatting starts with people registering uh, well-known brands on the second level. And uh, what we've been doing with our clients is trying to create uh, a uh, template for their particular businesses so that they can uh, obtain protection. Not everybody wants to do that. Uh, there's a real need for education uh, of businesses and industries so that they can at least take minimal steps, which are not expensive, to get protection if you're, say, a food company uh, there's no reason why you should not register some second-level domain names under .food, as an example, or if you're uh, uh, an insurance company, .insurance. Uh, there are a lot of these domains that have been released, and uh, uh, we find that industry is so far uh, playing catch-up. There, there really has not been an awful lot of attention to protection. So I would encourage all brand owners to think about consulting an attorney, uh, and, and working out a system where you don't have to spend a lot of money, but you can get protection, even if it's only defensive, to make sure others don't steal your trademark in these new GTLDs. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the domain name system is heading? Will it just be more and more GTLDs? Oh, and what should practi practitioners be doing for their clients today? Well, as to where it's heading, I think the jury is out at this point, um, We've seen some GTLDs, mainly the uh, GEOs, which are like Dot .Berlin and Dot .London, which seem to be doing very well with local businesses registering their name attached to Dot .London or Dot .NYC or, or whatever. 
But uh, as far as a lot of the others, they've been very weak. There's been very few registrations. For instance, I noticed yesterday Dot .cricket was released, and in the first uh, few days they only had 134 registrations on the second level, which uh, is not a good showing at all. So a lot of these are not attracting many registrants. Some are, and I think we'll just have to wait and see. As to uh, uh, where it's heading also, uh, ICANN probably will not have another round of GTLDs until possibly as late as 2020. Uh, there's a lot of analysis that has to be done on the first round. There's a lot of problems that have occurred uh, in, in, in connection with uh, uh, issuance of top-level domains that differ from one another only by an S, like .car against .cars, uh, something that we think uh, most trademark practitioners will recognize as a problem. Uh, there's also been problems for uh, people in trying to enforce rights in their domain names um, under some of the mechanisms that are present under ICANN. So there's a lot to do, and I think that uh, uh, practitioners today should be sitting down with their clients and trying to work out a cost-effective method to get protection at this point in whatever GTLDs affect their industries. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been very informative. Uh, thank you for being on IP Fridays. Well, thank you, Ken. I enjoyed it. Take care. If you want to learn more about Jim, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash B-I-K-O-F-F, www.ipfridays.com slash B-I-K-O-F-F. In this episode, we also have news from the European Patent Office. The Enlarged Board, Board of Appeal had the pleasure to deal with two cases again. These cases related to the production of tomatoes and broccoli. The case numbers are G2 of 13 and G2 of 12. The decisions have been published uh, in the end of March 2015. And they basically give a clear interpretation of Article 53b EPC. This article reads, European patents shall not be granted in respect of plant or animal varieties or essentially biological processes for the production of plants or animals. This provision shall not apply to microbiological processes or the products thereof. So in these two cases, the enlarged board said that plants are not plant varieties so there is a very narrow interpretation of the of the language of this article and it also said that a product by process uh, claim is not a claim for the process for the production of plants and should therefore be allowed so this is a very narrow interpretation of the exclusion of patentability of essentially biological processes or plant varieties. So if applicants are directing their claims to plants, individual plants or plant material, then it should be allowable. And it should also be allowable if you claim a product by process claim where the process features are essentially biological process features, but the claim itself is not a process claim, so it is not excluded by this article. 
to read the full text of these decisions, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash broccoli, which is spelled B-R-O-C-C-O-L-I. So you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash broccoli. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and also I hope that we see some of you in San Diego. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014, all rights reserved.